1: And I think the state and the governor, um, we have been getting funds from them, but getting them to coordinate the other cities in Illinois, which is also a the state to take on some capacity. Those are things that are politically risky now, but they will, they will be much better decisions now than what you'll be faced with next year if you don't do that. Hi,
0: everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is the chairman of the city council's committee on immigration and refugee rights—the man in the hot seat in the middle of the migrant crisis, Andre Vasquez. Thanks for joining us. You are the alderman of the North Side's 40th ward, and you had the guts to correct Mayor Johnson about the pronunciation of your name when he called on you at the city council.
1: How are you, sir? <laughs> Hi. Uh, thank you for having me on, friend. Uh, no, just was just that was helpful. that hard that's to all. do? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I think you know. I saw the tweets about the the misspelling uh, the name, but uh, I, I think especially in Hispanic Heritage Month, uh, we're just helping our folks out to make sure they get the names right. So no worries. And I'm
0: sure he didn't take offense. He has a good sense of humor.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: You knew you would have a pivotal role when you were anointed to this position when Mayor Johnson reorganized the city council and installed his allies in key positions, but did you ever imagine it would be this much of a pressure cooker?
1: Uh, So I I did. um, When it was first kind of mentioned to me as a position, um, I I took it uh, as a point of confidence in my ability to kind of dig in and do the work when things aren't easy. Um, and then looking at kind of how things were beginning to to scale up during that time, um, I kind of had a feeling of what we'd be in for.
0: And when you think about the fact that your predecessor, Ariel Ruboiris, had a committee, this committee, and barely met?
1: Yeah, I think it speaks to the difference in the administrations. Um, I think during uh, Mayor Lightfoot's administration, there were things that maybe they didn't want to discuss, which is why we didn't have a handle on, you know, the hiring of favorite staffing and other things. And so under Mayor Johnson, I think that's changed. Right? There's a lot more openness uh, and ability to get some of that information. And so it's incumbent upon us to have the hearings, to put out the website, to do everything we can uh, in the public interest.
0: Frustrations across the city are mounting with every arriving busload of asylum seekers, and it's very clear the parade of buses will only intensify as Chicago gets closer to hosting the Democratic National Convention next summer. When you consider that the convention is nearly a year away, how big and how expensive do you think this could get?
1: Uh, so that that's challenging, right? I mean, because there, there's two things to consider. One is the scale of how we address uh, the, the influx of new arrivals. But the other is just public safety in general as it relates to the DNC. So we actually um, introduced a uh, resolution uh, just yesterday at the council meeting uh, calling for a hearing on what the public safety plan is going to be for the Democratic Convention. Um, there's a lot of variables to think through. Um, clearly, there's going to be a lot of costs associated. Um, but it's also, why I think, that the federal government uh, and the state need to do more now Uh, in order to have us in better position for what we know is going to be um, more political attack from the Republican Party.
0: Yeah. Hasn't this convention put a gigantic bullseye on Chicago's back in the sense that it's almost like that infamous episode in one of my favorite TV shows, I Love Lucy, the candy factory where Lucy and Ethel are trying to wrap the candies and they can't keep up with it because the foreman keeps shouting, speed it up. And somebody is speeding it up. And that is the governor of Texas,
1: right? uh, It's it's definitely quite a picture you paint. And I definitely understand how it can absolutely feel like that episode. Um, I I said it, you know, as I started looking at this thing, it's pretty clear that, you know, the folks who are willing to bus folks to Martha's Vineyard are more than happy to exponentially increase the amount of buses that we're seeing. And I could see them trying to get close to the United Center or McCormick Place or any of the convention spots um as they can when we get to the convention because they want to make Chicago look like a disaster, the Democratic Party look like a disaster, and the president look like a disaster as you're heading into the election. And so I yeah, think- What is you your worst a- fear?
0: Yeah. What is your nightmare scenario about what might happen at that convention, which might end up being a mistake, really?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think what will end up happening in the worst case scenario is that is how it will play out. And that'll be what the news story is on and on and on, Right. Um, and then, then what are you doing? Is the city and then CPD looking to push buses back? None of it looks right on a national stage. And so I think that, that that's carrying, and you're talking August for a November election. It could lead to what could look like or feel like a coin toss. And we've been through this scenario before when it's Clinton versus Trump. So I, I, I'm a little concerned that people are so risk averse now politically that they're not taking the necessary steps. We need the federal government. To issue expanded and expedited work authorizations, knowing that these folks could find places to live, find places to rent, become taxpayers, and ultimately a net benefit. And I think the state and the governor—we um, have been getting funds from them, but getting them to coordinate the other cities in Illinois, which is also a welcoming state, to take on some capacity. Those are things that are politically risky now, but they will—they will be much better decisions now than what you'll be faced with next year if you don't do it.
0: The mayor of New York, Eric Adams, has warned that the migrant crisis there that has cost that city a billion dollars is going to destroy New York. And yet, Mayor Johnson has not been outspoken, as Adams is, about Biden and what he needs to do to help New York. Why isn't Mayor Johnson joining forces with the mayor of New York and saying, help us? You can't dump this on us. We can't
1: afford it. Well, I mean, I do have the question of of why uh, Chicago isn't more vocal when it comes to the national stage about this. But I don't think that the way Mayor Adams is going about it is the way to do it. Chicago is not that divisive. We've been a segregated town. And so I think if we actually built the infrastructures, they improve the cities. You have more people coming in that are going to be taxpayers. And and to feed into some of the anti-immigrant sentiment that we've heard generation after generation, ever a population comes to the country isn't the way to go. Um, I think there's also concern of what it looks like nationally, pitting two black men against each other. uh, When in reality, we need to be looking at the federal government to do more so that municipal governments aren't the ones that have to shoulder it all.
0: Well, there are, what do you mean pitting two black men against each other? They could join forces, Adams and Johnson,
1: shouldn't they? They They could, but the stance is different, right? So Adams is saying, this is gonna break our city. We need to stop this from happening and push. Whereas what we're saying is we are a welcoming city and a sanctuary city. We need the structures that help us do that more effectively. Those are two different stances on the same problem. And I, I think there's potential to kind of find a compromise there. But the way that Mayor Adams is going about it, I believe, isn't in the spirit of what this country is founded on and isn't in the spirit of what our welcoming city uh, is.
0: But shouldn't Mayor Johnson be turning up the heat on Joe Biden, who's a candidate for re-election, and also on Governor Pritzker, who hasn't done what some people believe is enough on this?
1: Uh, I I do believe so. I think think if you don't, and and you, you do it not from a place of animosity, but from a place of like seeing it on the ground of how real the situation is and how it's going to develop again for the Democratic Convention if you don't put that level of pressure now. You know, I've been at the community meetings for some of these uh, shelter sites and proposed base camps. And what you're seeing on the ground um, is becoming very, very um, hot uh, and tense in a way that we need to figure out a way to properly address it. And so my fear is that if you don't bring in the federal government and state to do more, it's going to boil over into the city and it'll be um, the mayor and the city council that are taking on more of the brunt, knowing that we have limitations on what we can do.
0: Mayor Johnson was on this show last week, as you mentioned, and he unveiled a desperation plan to get 2,000 migrants and counting off the floors of Chicago police stations, O'Hare and Midway airports, inhumane and untenable conditions, and move them to giant, tent cities that he prefers to call winterized base camps with metal frames, metal walls, rows and rows of cots, mess hall-like dining, heating and cooling units outside, trailers like uh, washroom-style trailers in the parking lot. But as we saw in the meeting about uh, the far south side's uh, 115th and Halstead proposed site, people do not want it. They're angry. They're saying, what about us? Not in my backyard. How are you going to convince Chicago residents who do not want these giant encampments with five or a thousand, five hundred or a thousand asylum seekers in one big place? That how are you going to convince people to accept those things?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think I I think there are concerns about the plan and the base camp that I have, Um, but I also think that we are in a position where you have to be the police station to figure it out. I think in order to do so. The message needs to be clear across Chicago of what the scale of this crisis is and what responsibility we need to take on. Now, the challenge that I'm seeing, because I was there um, at 115th and Halstead, um, as well as in the Fifth Ward uh, with Desmond Yancey, is that when we talk about the space needed for some of these uh, base camps, uh, because of how Chicago is segregated, the places that have the most space tend to be the South and West Side, which are Black communities that have been historically marginalized, screaming for investment and haven't received it. So when folks like that feel like they've been getting jerked by the government and now you're showing up to say we're going to set up a tent for new arrivals, it's creating tension there. And so I think that's a really challenging thing. I think we need more spots on the north uh, and, and northwest side to help in addressing some of that. But I think we also need to talk about what these base camps could do as far as providing shelter for the existing unhoused population prior to the new arrivals. Because if you're only doing it for the new arrivals and not for others who need it, and you're not making the case of what we're doing for all of the above, you're, you're reopening wounds that are in those communities and making it that much harder, uh, to move forward. Uh, I also have concerns just about the fact that if you're setting up folks in these tents, we have COVID surges. So what occurs if there's a surge in one of these and now you're seeing a situation there? So I think there's just a lot of, um, potential for, for division and for more tension, but I do realize that it also showcases the limitations of city governments in trying to address this.
0: So what are you saying? Are, are you suggesting that we should open winterized base camps for Chicago's homeless as well?
1: I think, I, I believe two things. I think you should have a ratio of what you're doing for the new arrivals, but we also know that our existing shelter system didn't have the capacity for the existing unhoused, right? It's why we're doing Bring Chicago Home and all these other things. So I think you've got to make the case of what you're doing for both. I also believe that if we spent time not only doing the uh, crisis management of the base camps, but actually acquired properties, you could make the case to, to communities that, hey, we're doing this right now. But once we're through this crisis, now you have city land that can become affordable housing, supportive housing, community centers in ways that become assets that we spent all that money rather than tends to go away.
0: So should we open a base camp for Chicago's homeless to, to take the overflow from the, the because the shelters are full?
1: I think you've got to figure out how we address it and how we talk about it because the, the different populations also have different service needs, right? A lot of the folks that are existing unhoused, uh, it's, they might be mental issues, substance use disorder issues. So you have to figure out how to solve for that. Uh, in the 40th Ward, we actually have a motel that's becoming a pilot for bridge housing so right. everyone gets a unit and they get the support systems. We just have to show people that we're doing both. If you don't do that, um, people will feel like you're only doing something for one population and neglecting the other.
0: And what do you do about the fact that the available land for these gigantic places, the vacant land, is in the south and west sides and the communities there that have been underinvested in will feel dumped on yet again if you choose them?
1: Yeah, I think you've got to, you've got to, one part of it is just hearing everybody out. You have to be on the ground. That's why, um, I've, I've committed myself to going to all of the different ones to kind of hear it. Because if it's only the alder from that ward there, you know, conveying the message, um, they're bearing the brunt of it. And we've got some folks who just came into office. Um, so I think we need to be there to hear it out to address the concerns that we're hearing and need to find ways to make commitments to the folks in those neighborhoods that we are investing there as well. We're not just here to use the land and keep it moving. We have to figure out what we're gonna do for these communities so they don't feel, rightfully so, that they've been in um, the short end of the stick.
0: What other sites have you heard about or suggested other than 115th and Halstead?
1: That's been the only one that I've heard about and I heard about that through uh, news reports. So I hadn't heard it from the administration directly. Um, and so, you know, we're looking to see in 40, for example, are there opportunities? So, so that's what we're kind of looking through this week and last week is like, what's feasible, what could be done? Um, uh, you know, we know the one in the 39th ward, which used to be 40, the Marine site is coming online. Um, but that's all I've heard.
0: How many of these places do these, does the administration intend to build or don't they know because they don't know how many migrants are going to show up here?
1: Well, so I've heard, um, you know, from different folks, that part of it is is looking at them as kind of triage centers. That if you're looking at the amount of folks that have been addressed through the police stations, right, that's like a thousand, two thousand. That if you have them as triage centers, as you build up shelter site areas, that you can use that first place as a landing spot as opposed to the police station. So I believe that's the intent. Um, that that's what it appears to me.
0: These encampments are intended to be more humane than sleeping on police station and airport floors. And they probably are. It doesn't get much worse than that. But is warehousing up to a thousand people in one giant place with rows of cots and tables really that much of an improvement? Is that really humane? Some advocates have said that this kind of thing has been tried at the border and has been a colossal failure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is, uh, just as you stated, an improvement to the police stations. And also, as I say that, want to give credit to the hundreds of actual volunteers that have been donating and helping and providing food and blankets and everything else and filling the gap that government has not been able to cover, right? That, that's also been part of the challenges. You've got people that are just out of their own pocket trying to help folks in police stations. So I think that the base camps are an improvement. Um, but to your point, it's not ideal. We're talking about folks that are coming from South and Central America. Who, I mean, I was just at the police station a couple of days ago, and they were asking us, like, "Is this what winter feels like?" Because we're pretty cold now. So they don't even know what Chicago winter is going to feel like. And so I, I've got concerns about what that looks like, and it's why I believe you need to put more pressure on the president to expand extra the work authorizations. Because if not, that's it's, not going to happen. Tentative.
0: Lynn Sweet of our Washington bureau, who knows a lot about this stuff, says dream on, it will not happen in Congress. So give that part of it up, she says.
1: I think she's right, I don't think it's Congress. I think it's president through executive order. Congress is not gonna move it, which is also why I think the pressure needs to be coming from the cities because that's the calculation you're making politically, right? You're saying, well, how much can I take knowing that we're okay as far as the base, but if we're not gonna lose anybody, let's not do anything and rock the boat because it's politically risky. If, however, the pressure is coming from the city of saying, hey, people on the ground here are having issues, right? Like I'm I'm at these uh, shelter meetings and, and you're hearing things that sound like Trump rallies for people. And that's going to have effect when people are less than enthusiastic about the Democratic Party in the presidential elections. And if we're not saying that out loud and people don't understand what effect that could have, they're not going to make the decisions that I believe are necessary in the moment.
0: So what are you saying that if Biden doesn't issue an executive order uh, allowing these people to work, that he's going to risk a backlash of high proportions and maybe jeopardize his
1: reelection? I think that we've seen in the near, uh, in the recent past, what happens when the Democratic Party thinks they have it in the bag and they just have to, you know, steady as she goes. We've had a authoritarian dictator in the White House because people weren't able to take political risks. And what they saw was that the Republican Party was more than enthused about their candidate, and you're losing enthusiasm in the Democratic Party. And if you're leaving Democratic cities and welcoming cities that are doing the right things uh kind of by the side, and in some ways ignoring it and only showing up when their are fundraisers here, there's going to be a response by that electorate.
0: So what do you want Biden to do?
1: As I keep saying, it's pretty simple. Expand and expedite the work authorizations
0: by executive order. By executive
1: order. By executive order. I mean, you saw just this past week they arrested folks for uh, what uh, cutting hair at a park here in Chicago because they didn't have work authorization or licensing. You have got concerns about folks who may be being brought in for uh, into sex trafficking rings because they're trying to figure out how to make a buck. All these things are byproducts of not doing the right thing and issuing those work authorizations through executive order.
0: So that's one thing you want from him. What else do you want from him?
1: I mean You want more money, division.
0: obviously. You need of, of more course. money. Can he of find course. the money on his own to increase the uh, the flow of federal money to Chicago for this purpose?
1: Well, you know, we just saw a story about the amount of money that Texas is getting from the federal government to actually use the buses to send people here. I, I don't know how I think that'll be challenging through Congress. I think the executive order, perhaps. You could say, "Hey, if you're sending people from Texas to Chicago, you're also sending that money that you've been saying you need because you're not, now you're off you're you're offloading the challenge. So we're taking some of that resource to make sure that the cities that are taking that on are better resourced to do so. I think there's cases to be made, and I think I think we're not hearing any of it happening, and that that's more concerning because, as you know, here in Chicago, it's just bubbling up, and and as we head into budget, it's going to be a bigger situation." as we look at how much has been spent in Chicago. Right, with let, let's talk about like.
0: that. The city estimates it will have spent more than a quarter billion dollars on this crisis through the end of this year, well over 300 million and counting after Mayor Johnson forges ahead with his winterized base camps. The mayor has pointedly refused to rule out a tax increase, budget cuts, or both to pay for this crisis. Where exactly is the money going to come from? This is literally turned into a bottomless pit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think in thinking about it, I think it's very easy to see the forecast and feel that way. Um, But I do know that we've seen bigger deficits in in the last term, right? So what I want to see is what their choices are in addressing it as we head into budget season. You know, I, for example, I'll just say it, I think the CPI should remain uh, as part of the You budget. think the
0: cost of living escalator tying and locking in future uh, annual property tax increases at the late rate of inflation. You want that to continue. Why?
1: I, you know, I, I was hesitant when it was getting added on. But in looking at it, what it does is it adjusts for the inflation and cost of government. And if you don't do that, what you end up seeing are these wild swings every four years when there's a new term, making up for the gap that hasn't been covered for the past number of years. So, I do believe the case can be made that you're not raising property taxes if you're leaving something there that was already there. Right? That was something that was structural. And and Mayor
0: Johnson campaigned on a promise not to raise property taxes, but he also campaigned on a promise to make a billion dollars worth of people investments and bankroll it with $800 million in tax increases that he looks like he's not going to get because of business opposition,
1: at least a a big
0: chunk of it if he gets
1: any of it. So, well, so I, yeah, go ahead. I, I I think that the people of Chicago are understanding about the effort people pull in, put in and know that it's not just a one and done, even if you're making the case about trying to reach those funds. And so I think it makes perfect sense for us to uh, talk about the real estate transaction tax or increasing the local government distributed fund uh, from the state level, right? I think that we can talk income tax. I think those things should be on the table as you're figuring out how to solve for Chicago is like pension debt service and how we invest in people. Those all absolutely make sense. But I think there's also realities as to what the numbers look like currently and what your tools are, right? So I think for me, in looking at how big the deficit is, um, the part about the CPI to me is something I think you can make the case of the city of like, <clears throat> look, this deficit is what it is. We're not raising any taxes. We're leaving what that is in place, right? And trying to figure out other forms of taxation to figure out how to solve the deficits. And I do think the the part about using some of the ARPA funds to fill in some of the, the past expenses as Life had put had put in is something to kind of look into and discuss.
0: So you think he's making a mistake by getting rid of that automatic escalator tying property taxes to the rate of inflation?
1: No, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm just what I'm saying is looking at this uh, forecast, those are the concerns I have we have yet to see how they want to solve for that problem, right? So I can't say anybody's making a mistake if we're not seeing what their proposal is to address it. So I think once we see um, what their budget, what the mayor's budget looks like, then we can engage in that conversation, right? For all we know, they figured out ways to cover that gap that allows them to do the things that I have concerns about. So I think Well, that's, they that's may that's just take a thing.
0: huge TIF surplus, which is a one-time thing, which is not a structural fix, and they may eliminate a lot of the vacancies in the city budget, vacant positions, including police officers, 1,700 of those.
1: Well, Would I mean, you I support do think, that? I, I do think we got to look at vacancies. I think that because we're talking police, even though we're talking all of government, police tends to be a more visceral feeling when we're talking about it. right? But vacancies are vacancies. And eliminating them just makes your government more efficient and effective it's why i've said that we need to audit the police department and other departments to make sure you're making the best use of those dollars because when you're spending 40 percent of the corporate fund on one department out of 36 of them when you have a multi-billion dollar budget for one department it is incumbent upon us to make sure those dollars are being well spent but i also think you can say the same about um ais which i believe needs to be separated so you have a it department that can work on making our government more streamlined, more effective, make sure people get their permits and everything else sooner because they would pay more to get it done sooner in a way that brings in revenue. I think you have to look at our procurement department because it's such a slog to fill in those vacancies that that needs to be working better, right? And we also need to look at our HR. So none of these things are exciting or sexy to talk about, but if you address those things, government moves quicker and you're able to solve for uh, efficiencies that I think is something we need to look at. So yeah, I would be open to looking at the vacancies in a way that makes the numbers work.
0: And if you eliminate police vacancies, you have the argument about you have a robbery surge citywide, that is absolutely alarming. Some neighborhoods Mm -hmm. have had 50 or 100% or 150% increases in robberies. I know that your neighborhood is not immune to it. Your ward is not immune to it. What should be done about that? And won't that be a hard sell for your constituents when they are scared to death of robberies?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a difference between eliminating vacancies and hiring. And what I mean by that is, because you're eliminating vacancies that aren't being filled doesn't mean you're not hiring, right? I also think that the way our system has been set when we think about police uh, isn't really working because you're asking police officers to do jobs they're not responsible for. They have they get called when there are mental health issues, when there's substance use disorder issues, when there's homelessness, when there's a cat stuck in a tree, then permit parking isn't being enforced. And so you're overwhelming uh, these folks that are doing this job. You're burning them out. They're working, you know, weeks without days off. Um, and, and they need their own mental health support systems that because we're offloading everything, thinking that police are a solve all, uh, you're not getting the best use. If, however, you invest in the departments that dealt with homelessness, with substance use disorder, and all the things that I mentioned, then you can have officers focus on their core functions, which I believe are apprehension, investigation and emergency response when appropriate. So we need to right size all of this. So you're not overwhelming these officers that are doing some of the hardest jobs in government. Like they're risking their lives and we're burning them out at the same time, having them do things that they're not prepared or even want to do because we haven't built up our system properly.
0: Thursday was an important symbolic day for the progressive movement that you are a part of. Uh, the mayor and his allies introduced their compromise plan to raise the real estate transfer tax Uh to create a dedicated funding source for homelessness. And they need three votes. They need to put it on the ballot in a binding referendum. That's one city council vote. They need the voters to approve it. Then they need the city council to implement the tax. Then they also uh, created, uh, the mayor created a working group to devise a plan to implement treatment, not trauma, which is that citywide plan you just talked about to create a citywide network, non-police response to mental health emergencies and reopen some of the mental health clinics. Um, and then uh, there was the campaign to eliminate the subminimum wage for tip workers. It was, prefer- it was referred, re-referred actually to the Workforce Development Committee where it will be tee up for, teed up for approval to give restaurants just two years to phase in an increase from $9.48 an hour to fifteen eighty dollars an hour, which they say is not long enough. Then you had the Peace Book Ordinance reintroduced, which calls for cutting the police department budget by 2% to fund investments for young people across the city run by young people themselves. So this is a kind of a landmark day symbolically for progressives, but there's a long way to go, isn't there?
1: Absolutely, but I think it does highlight um, really what was able to be achieved by by folks on the ground organizing, by movement, by the progressive movement, by, by even the socialists that are in office to kind of get the kind of government That works for people. And so I think what we're seeing now is, is a movement in that direction. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely not. Are there going to be hurdles that we have to overcome and questions we have to answer? Absolutely. But at least we can begin those conversations rather than having, having an oppositional mayor who is blocking and tackling us, even having the conversations. So I, I don't think it's easy. Um, I think it's necessary to have the conversations. And, and I think that through talking to different stakeholders, and figuring out what solutions look like, we can make progress in a city that has been needed for generations and definitely for decades.
0: There's a very methodical approach that the mayor has to all these problems and studying it in working groups. Are progressives ever going to get impatient with the pace of change under Mayor Johnson? Are they willing to wait? You know, if he can't open but one mental health clinic, will they be satisfied with those things?
1: Uh, yes, there will be impatient. No, they will be not be, they will not be satisfied. And I think that is healthy and necessary, right? There's always going to be a tension between what's being pushed from the ground and what's needed and what government has to provide. So I think that's actually very healthy for a democracy. And I think, um, people need to keep the same energy they had when Lightfoot was in the seat as to the things they want to get accomplished. Now, are we in better position that we have an ally on the fifth floor? Who sees things the way we do and can help kind of think through the problem with us, absolutely. But that doesn't mean we have to rest on our laurels or, or be satisfied with things that we think are insufficient. Uh, it, it means that we have to put up wins for the people of Chicago that need them and know that our work isn't done.
0: Before we let you go, I have to mention your background. You were a former rapper, accused mm-hmm. of misogynistic lyrics, and you have come a long way, baby. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for saying that. I mean, uh, you know, uh, yes, and it it was reported as far as like what my past was. I was definitely ignorant and said a lot of toxic things. And I think it's a byproduct of what it feels like not to be a part of community, right? If you feel like you're already an other, as opposed to being part of a larger community, you find your other cliques and people you, you know, um, come together with. And sometimes there are things that are not healthy in those circles. And so I think that's that's what I think about now. That because I've been able to Open myself up to be exposed to so many different people to help build one unified community where we all work together. You're able to address and, 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 in some ways, heal from that ignorance. And so, when I think about the situation we find ourselves now, right? You know, people are yelling things and and and, and um booing people and everything in City Council. I don't view that as much as like anger or hate or animosity. I view it as pain, and I view it as a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding. And and for me having that understanding, having that awareness, having people, you know, help eliminate the ignorance in, in me, help me move a far along this to where I'm at now, which is why I put out the same energy and I go to these shelter meetings to hear it from people, knowing that what I'm hearing isn't anger. It's pain from a people that haven't been invested in, that, that are feeling like they're getting the raw end of the deal. And it's fair for us to open our arms to say, I hear that. We want to make sure we're investing in all of Chicago. Um, and so I've been blessed to actually be able to learn through my journey as bumpy as it's been, um, to be where I'm at now.
0: If you tried to say or do any of that stuff now, I guarantee you, you would have been canceled. <laughs> do you ever think about yeah, that?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think about, I think about what I would say to young me and I would say, Hey, look, I know you feel like you got a chip on your shoulder and I know you feel like things ain't fair, but I don't think you see where you can end up if you just, if if you look at things a little bit differently. That's that's what my conversation would be. I think it's it's less about cancel and more about counsel. Let's let's make sure we have people that we can talk to, that folks in need therapy can have it, that people have their circles of people that bring them in. If we create those structures of care, as my colleague um auto woman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez says, I think you end up with a healed city and a healed people.
0: Council, not cancel. That's a good slogan. Andre Vasquez, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with this migrant crisis, and we will see you all next week.
1: Thank you so much, friends. Take care.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car,